So let me ask, well, I'll tell you where we're going today, and this is the end. So like, I can't say we're going to do something else next week. This is, we're done after today. Here's what we're going to try to accomplish. I'm interested in where you guys um, have ended up on our uh, man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians. So we're going to talk about that. Um, I have some, what I wrote down that I think are key questions about that passage, things that I've been thinking about during the week and um, and have pointed me, I think, in a general direction of what I think it is. And so we'll kind of go through those things. And then uh, once we get done with that, I want to kind of remind ourselves going forward how we can continue to approach sections of Scripture like the ones that we've been talking about. We did not exhaust our end-time section of Scripture, but I feel like we've covered most of the types, the types of things that you're going to run into. Um, I think we've hit those. So we'll talk through those reminders on how we can approach that going forward. I will, um, I'll give you a heads up. Some, I want you to consider starting to read Revelation because our next step, now that we've got some of this stuff out of the way, is I want to actually start studying the book of Revelation. My guess is that we won't get to that until, um, I don't know, maybe December. We'll see how, we'll see how life goes with another kid. It may be Oh, we may change the start of the year. We'll see. We'll see what happens because I want to make sure I'm well prepared for our revelation discussion. Because some of the stuff that we've digested here, um, with some of our lofty language, gets way worse in Revelation. I don't think it is necessarily more difficult. It's just more interesting, and so we'll have to take some time doing that. So, um, but it wouldn't be a bad thing to start reading through. So, what I will do is give you some hints on how you can start approaching Revelation um, without getting lost, and we'll talk about that. And then I just got a couple things I want to close with, and then we will be done. And nobody sent me any questions. I assume you guys are all, everyone's rocking. They know everything. They feel completely comfortable. You sent me to another man. That's true. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Dan Custis. <laughs> Dig the following man. Who knows what he's saying? Um, <laughs> oh, good. Good. No, no, no you're fine. <laughs> Uh, actually, I continue. I told you when we when we started the class that there was there was someone in my in my family who of which uh, would not agree with the things that I'm saying. It's my grandfather. My grandpa's a, a, a pastor, a, a Southern Baptist pastor in Missouri, and him and I do not agree on this particular item. <laughs> and that's all right. He loves Jesus, and I love Jesus, so we're there. <laughs> well, the reason I asked my old pastor, he just moved to Oklahoma mm-hmm. last weekend. Um, the reason I asked him is he, he believes what you do. Oh, interesting. That's why I, and I could kind of see like that, how he felt, why, uh, why he thought why he thought that, yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. And he, thought, he kind of explained a little bit, which Good. Me. Good. Very good. Cool. Uh, all right, so that's what we got on docket. Uh, any questions before we get started? All right. So I'm going to read through the, our uh, Second Thessalonians passage, and then I, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts. So this was Paul writing to uh, a church in Thessalonica. This is his second letter to them. And he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, 
with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All right. Let me go through let me go through my key questions. Things that I, that I think we should be thinking about and then and then I'll be interested to hear what you guys came to. Um, so here's the stuff that I've been thinking about this week. Um, first of all, Paul seems to be giving signs. Rebellion comes, man of lawlessness is revealed that must occur before the day of the Lord. And so how does that inform our understanding of the passage? Based upon, and this was one of the things I posted for you on Facebook, is that if this, this is something that is to be in the future and that there are signs pointing to it, how do we understand that in the terms of what seemed to be clear for me in, in previous scripture that there would be no signs before Christ's return? And so how do I understand that kind of in comparison to that? In verse 4, uh, it says that the person takes their seat in the temple of God. So what is, what is Paul referring to there? Like, is it a literal temple? Is it a figurative use of the word temple? What we know about when the temple is destroyed, how do, how do we digest that? If it's, a figure, if it's a literal temple, it would seem to orient something around the temple. If it's not a literal temple, then I think we've got a number of options of what that could refer to. Um, verse 5, Paul seems to have talked to them before about this. And again, we talked about this a little bit this last week. It seemed to be something that was relevant to them. And he, he also seems to think that they know what is restraining the man of lawlessness. So like of the things that he says he's communicated to them, he seems to, to think that they would understand, you know who is restraining. And so it would be something that they would understand. Um, if it's not something in their day, who or what could it be that they could continue to understand what that is? Um, Verse 8, um, Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Um, I think I think the what's interesting there is it's sometimes put an image. We talked about how, how Christ gets things done. He seems to be able to speak things. And so do I have to see this as something literal where there is some sort of battle or altercation? Or are there words that Christ has spoken that otherwise I might be able to, to see where this informs and speaks together? Uh, verse 9 says, The deception of the lawless one seems to impact those who are already deceived. So this, this doesn't seem to be the lawless one deceiving the church with the way that Paul describes it. To me, it seems to come off that he is deceiving people who are already deceived and is basically making the matter worse. And then God contributes to that delusion towards the end, um, which I think is a distinction of how we might read that passage if we say it's not really the church or those that already believe that are being impacted. It seems to be people who are already under a delusion. Um, and in verse 10, it said, refuse to love the truth and be saved. And it makes me wonder, like, what... What truth? What truth do we know that leads to being saved? And, and do we know or could we know who it is that is being, being deceived by that? So those are the key questions that have kind of been going through my mind as I try to filter out what could this be? Who could this apply to? Because I don't know if you guys did any extensive just even Googling around. Um, but I don't have enough fingers and toes to tell you how many what I would consider to be viable thoughts on what this might be. Okay, like, like you probably have a good 200 that are outlandish. Um, but I mean, a good 20 plus of like reasonable people who have put together things, looking at scripture and say, could be this, could be this. I, I, th I saw a lot that I thought it seems plausible to me. So that's how I was filtering. So let me, what, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Who is our man of lawlessness? An apostate. An apostate. Can you be more, can you give me a more description? Uh, uh, a believer that turned away. Okay. Fell away, fell out. 
had the truth but consciously, willfully turned. Okay. Okay. How come? I checked the Greek. Interesting. Continue. What about the what about the Greek? <laughs> like was there anything like anything about that that made that was like three days ago, I No no I hear you. I hear you. Um that just if you if you read then go back and reread this with that thought in mind. It, it falls into place for me as a believer that's fallen away or been turned away or been allowed to continue as God allows us. If we go, if we go after it, he'll he'll let you go. Okay. He'll let you he'll let you stream after it and to pull others away. And I think coming from now concerning the coming of the Lord Christ, these things are going to have to happen. Might be signs that that the church just is having believers just turn away because it, it's too much under the pressure. Okay. Was my thought process on it? Like believers are being persecuted. There's all these false prophets coming. Mm-hmm. A believer could be easily taken away by the wiles of Satan when he colors things, you know, just a different shade of red, and, and they fall away on it. And then some are going to fall away and, and believe it and rise up against the church because temple, I think I understand, mm-hmm. is referring to the actual temple. Okay. So if there was something going on in those times where, you know, the warning, don't believe what you're hearing. Don't, right. Don't fall away. Don't don't believe that Christ has already come. Okay. You know, it just kind of seemed to fit with that thought. Okay. Okay. Kind of where I'm at with it. All right. I like it. Thanks, April. Good. What else? Anybody else running across something? Satan. You think it's Satan? Man of lawlessness is Satan? I think so, yes. Okay. So he is... uh, Satan is being restrained and is otherwise the one that is claiming to be God and will ultimately be revealed... Yeah? yeah. Okay. Okay. He could only do what God allowed him to, like with Job. He could only do what you know. He could do this and this, and this, but he couldn't take his life. Okay. God said you can't do that. Agreed. And you know. Okay. Okay. And he was, of course, believer, wasn't he? Because you know, before he changed in heaven. Right. And he came down, and took some angels with him. Okay. I have a couple of okay. questions. Yeah. What made the Thessalonians perceive that it was the end of times anyway? I don't remember if we touched on that before or not. What What made them so sure that it was close to the end of times where he had to write them this and explain to them that it wasn't? So I think if we can, imp- I think we can imply it, that it, it is potentially one of the things that he mentions in verse two. Not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So I think there might be something in that, like, some of those things are influencing them to believe that the day of the Lord has come. Now, if we can think about what might do that, and I think this actually falls in line with it, with, with some of the things that, that both of you have been talking about, is if there is a, um, to what advantage is it if you can convince someone that Christ has already come or is not coming, 
um, it accomplishes the ends that I think you guys are talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Is to convince you, well, if, if he said he was going to come and A, you don't know about it, that's, that should be troublesome for you. Or um, he's not coming and obviously you've put your belief into a false into a false prophet. Jesus is a false prophet. And so is that is it possible that you see a manipulation of Satan to do that? I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think you see um, the letter seeming to be from us, someone purporting to be Paul, um, or one of the brothers to try to influence the church and say, this is something that is that has already occurred. Um, that would make a lot of sense for that kind of thing to happen. Or a spoken word, someone who is otherwise coming by and representing that that's true. So it would seem to be one of those one of those three things, Dan. Well, uh, Chuck Miser website, he said Thessalonica was the first Christian community that got persecuted by Rome. That's and that's believable if you say, if you look at the time with there. Um, we said this letter is probably 50 A.D. Yeah. Now, one thing to talk about on Christian persecution because I, I think um, although the early church was persecuted, they're persecuted in, in the same way that Christ was. In that you're not generally seeing persecution happening to um, everybody, right? Because well, I said Rome is, isn't isn't generally going after everybody because they don't have what. Yeah, they don't have the manpower, they don't have the time, they don't have resources to chase every person who is otherwise believing in something that is not consistent with the Roman Empire's belief structure. Or, And frankly, they had a very loose belief structure. All you had to do was kind of take in and agree to also believe in what they believed. In fact, they would, as part of their citizenship requirements, or um, to, to get people to uh, come into the Roman Empire, a lot of times what they would do is say, your gods? Yeah, sure, sure. And ours too? Put them together? Great. This is going to be fine. That's how you that's how you take over large areas of land is you have to find ways to not have people fighting you all the time. And so the easiest thing is they just become pretty lax with it. You have to meet certain requirements of what you worship. Um, generally stuff surrounded by the imperial cult things. Are you worshiping the emperor as a god? But as, as long as you're doing that alongside you know, what you believe, they can get on board with that because it keeps their empire relatively peaceful. And so they don't have the manpower, though, to be chasing around everybody. So they tend to go after the leaders. And then you crucify them as an example, right? So that didn't necessarily change in the earlier part of the church. Um, we always we talk about, look what happened to the disciples, but they were leaders in the church. And so that did happen. Your, your average believer probably isn't seeing the level of persecution that you're otherwise seeing by a, a Eastern Orthodox Christian in ISIS territory. There, they're a little, they're indiscriminate. Okay? It doesn't seem to matter who it is. Um, whereas Rome is, is probably picking out you kind of your top tier folks to make examples of them because, again, it's not really worth it to chase every person who claims to be a little Christ around. They, they need to make an example of some people. So when we talk about early persecution in the church, it, it certainly did happen. Um, but it's probably overstated to make it sound like in, an, in a room like this, they're probably coming after me because I'm the guy standing here. You guys are probably fine. So that's that's kind of how how Rome would work. They just don't have the resources to be chasing everybody. Okay, just to, uh, and thanks for bringing that up, Dan. That reminded me of something that I, it's not that it's not true. It's just we probably need to make sure we don't oversell what that physical persecution looked like. It still tended to be kind of your top tier guys because that was the most efficient way to take down big groups of people. April, did you have a question? Um, a lot of the commentaries that I ran across refer to the very opening of Second Thessalonians as a clarification of 1 Thessalonians' letter to where there might have been some either disagreement or not quite understanding what was said in the first letter, taking it, twisting it, where they're giving this warning that Jesus hasn't come yet, you didn't miss it, Mm -hmm. be careful who you're listening to and all this kind of stuff because there was already starting some 
some turning away, if you will, that's kind of went why I kind of went to the apostate side. Mm-hmm. It's because then the apostates were the ones actually stirring up the trouble at the temple, trying to keep people from actually entering it, believing that all of this was a sham, and so now they're just going to abandon it and turn away and actually try to get people to turn away with them. So I would agree that there was... There was very much, um, that does seem to be what a lot of the follow-up letters are, are, are having to do. Second Peter does a very similar thing, is, is people's misunderstanding of whatever's being taught, whether it's from Peter or from somewhere else, to try to correct false teachings in the church. It seemed to be something that they were having to spend a lot of time doing, which makes sense with some of the stuff we've talked about, right? Like constantly warning about false teachers and people leading them astray and people trying to point them to other things. And uh, it does seem to th- that something that they're very much concerned about. And I would agree that I think there's probably some of that because at the end of 1 Thessalonians, um, the whole of chapter 5 and, and actually the last latter half of chapter 4 um, that's talking about what we said was kind of our uh, standard rapture verse. And then chapter 5 is, you know, don't be worried about the people uh, and, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I know I would agree with that. I would agree with that there's, there's probably elements of trying to clarify. And, you know, to be honest with you, I think that makes a lot of sense because at its face value, Jesus is, a, is an interesting character to digest. Like, the truth that they are faced with is a very interesting truth to have to take in, especially knowing what they know. If you're, if you're a, the average Jew, to be faced with what they're faced with, and this is not going to be a one-for-one one example, but I just, just hear me as, as kind of a comparison, is it's a complete shift of how they understand they're interacting with God. Okay? And they're accepting something new to which they may or may not have been able to comprehend that they should have accepted it as new. And so it might be similar to us being presented with something like the Book of Mormon. Right or an additional something in which we're saying, this doesn't fit in my paradigm at all. And now you're asking me to accept this. I flat out reject that. I will not follow what it is that you're saying. We do that today, right? I would say, I reject this as being an addition to what I'm supposed to know about God. And so I think it is unfair to say that it is that clear for the Pharisees and for the, the, people, the Jews, because there's plenty in the Old Testament about pointing to Christ. But if you understand what what's shifting for them, it is kind of a paradigm shift with the, what they've been holding on to. And you know, an interesting thing to think about, and this is this goes into what we've talked about a little bit about the Old Testament, is that could you lead someone to Jesus using only the Old Testament? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You you should. Jesus did. He he did, and that's that's something for us to think about as followers of Christ. Is like when they're talking about Scripture, they mean Old Testament, right? And so there is enough in the Old Testament that this, these things point to Christ. And sometimes we hand out the New Testament with the Psalms kind of tacked onto it, and that's kind of the thing we hand out to people. And I think we run some risks there because we miss, we miss kind of the depth of God's story. And I'm not saying that you have to be able to do that, but what I'm saying is, is that it's a good barometer as to whether we understand God's story well. Is if, could I point someone to Christ using only information that I have available to me from an Old Testament perspective. Because Jesus, all of Jesus' truth claims are based upon what they know about the Old Testament, right? Well, they didn't have it, obviously. The saints at that time didn't even have it. We have more available to us now than they ever would have. That's true. I mean, they also put, they committed much more to memory. Like, they, they would have memorized... Absolutely, but the Old Testament, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's not a guy, like, carrying strolls in the back pocket or anything, but they also would have been much more familiar with some of the words and stuff um, than, than we certainly are. Because we've gotten used to having something as a reference, we just don't have to remember. There is something about... I, I didn't think much of this probably 10 years ago. I thought, you know, I, I have Bible references. I have stuff... I can get stuff on my phone. You know, like, I don't know that I need to worry about this. But, like, there is something about having God's Word kind of soak in um, and kind of breathe through you as you go. And so... Um, 
I don't know, something that I kind of have on my on my radar are things that I'd like to spend more time doing, not memorizing because I want to kind of beat somebody up with it and I want to have it at my ready, um, but because I want it to kind of soak through me and permeate and grow um, and then pour out from my life because I'm, I'm constantly taking it in and spending time with it. That's how the Lord taught the, the apostles was from the Old Testament. Yep. The Psalms, you know, and the, yep. and the prophets, so... Exactly. Which makes you wonder, like, that's another thing to think about. When Paul's talking... A lot of new teachings gave what was there. Right, right. He's repeating some of these things and kind of helping them in um, to understand what they are. And if you think about where Paul would have gotten this information, I mean, he spent three years hanging out with Jesus, mm-hmm. right? So, like, some of this information, we're like, why is he talking so vague? He's talking about restrainers. He's talking about all these things. And, like, these aren't things that are otherwise talked about by some of the other disciples. And so... I don't really have much of a reason to think this is anything but stuff that Jesus has otherwise shared with Paul, which makes it very interesting because I demand Paul be more specific. And really what I'd be able to be doing is say, Jesus, if you only would have been more specific with Paul, I wouldn't be stuck here in this position. Well, I, I'm stuck on this one line here, and okay. you can explain to me. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So God is restraining Satan. Is what I'm reading there, correct? If if the man of lawlessness is Satan, right. um, then Holy Spirit or God would make sense in that context. Okay, so then until he is out of the way, so does that mean God is going to step aside and then let you know all of the you know the false prophets and everything? That that line it just it's kind of confusing. So that line I, I didn't write this down, but in the Greek it is even worse. Like it is a very confusing, um, confusingly rendered line. You know, who, who is the he is out of the way? Yeah, so so I would say, by the way that is written, that the he is attached to the man of lawlessness, That's what I, yeah. not the restrainer. Yeah. Um, not that the restrainer would be moving out of the way, but that also kind of informs how I think about it. Go ahead, Eric. He isn't in the Greek. Oh, <laughs> of course it isn't. <laughs> Why would it be? Greek's a weird language. You don't have to use pronouns in order to convey your meaning, and it doesn't. So in that case, then it, it actually leaves us in the same ambiguous territory as far as who those words apply to. Um, I would say, and this informs again what I what I think about this passage is I actually think it it uh, applies to the man of lawlessness, not the restrainer. Some people think that uh, a man of lawlessness could be uh, Caligula too. Yeah, and I'm gonna, I'm going to put. Um, he actually set up an image of himself and sat in the temple. Do you, do you remember me talking about him? He was the guy, like the first guy who said, I'm not waiting until I'm dead. I will be deified now. You will worship me as a god. Okay, that's that's the Roman imperial cult that says you will worship the emperor as a god. This continues. As soon as he sets this precedent, this continues. <laughs> no one wants to let go of this, of being the man chosen by the gods to rule over Rome. Um, so yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lump him with... Yeah. Um, I'm going to lump him in with a group of them because I think there are some viable theories about Roman emperors. Um related to being the man of lawlessness, um, the person that is defiling the temple. Because if you think about, this is where there was constant animosity between the Jews and Rome, because Rome was constantly trying to put their images and their uh, their emperor stuff within the city of Jerusalem, within the temple, within the synagogues. Um, and so like a lot of a lot of troubles are arising from those things. And so um, there's their thought, like that's how things are defiled, someone trying to worship them as a god, and that, that kind of represents the, the defiling the temple. There's a lot of that that goes on here. There's a big bucket of guys that this could be. I think um, Vespasian, who 
is eventually emperor, but he was the, the general that was basically leading that, that uh, charge against the rebellion of the Jews, um, who also ultimately makes and takes the temple. Um, that's Vespasian, and so like, he probably fits well into this category of potential guys that are lawlessness. Well, haven't they for years thought that this would have referred to the Antichrist also? Yes, and the, there's... It could be a, a world figure or right. a, a government yeah. or yes. something that's going to change everybody's the empire. Yeah. Correct, and so there's... Um, as a matter of fact, I was reading an article a couple days ago by a fairly well-known guy, um, a radio guy, on, on the same station that I'm on, and, and talking about kind of that very thing. As a matter of fact, any of discussions about in Revelation about the beast or the Antichrist tend to route back through Second Thessalonians 2 um, because they, they want to tie those things together. I'm not sure there's a legitimate tie there, um, but all of it kind of routes into the same thing. What's interesting, and I knew, I, I thought about this before I came here and I didn't write it down, but what's interesting is how John identifies or um, describes Antichrist Let's see if we can find him. It's in 1 John. Let me, let me find it. If someone gets it before me, just say so. You're at 1 John chapter 4. There we go. Ah, okay. So, so listen, this is uh, the Apostle John writing, and this is one of his letters. Uh, and he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you had heard was coming and now is in the world already. So, I get that there is a figure, an Antichrist type of figure, in Revelation, and we'll get to that when we get through our Revelation stuff. But if you accept John's definition of what an Antichrist is, it doesn't seem to be some dominant worldwide figure that has to lead some kind of mammoth government and is otherwise convinced everybody that he's God. That's right, and what's the beginning there, which says, don't listen to a spirit. Right, right. It seems it's, it's, it's a spirit that is otherwise trying to point you away from Jesus. It's a pretty simple definition, and it doesn't seem to be limited to a single entity. It's any spirit that's trying to point you away from Jesus. Which would, go ahead. Uh, that second word spirit in that verse is also not in the Greek. Um, on which one? Verse? Uh, verse 3. You have every spirit that does not come from Jesus is not from God. But this, and then there's the phrase that gets inserted in the spirit of, that's not in the Greek. So it's just, this is the Antichrist. Yeah, it's this Antichrist which you have heard that is coming is now already. Uh, in the world. Okay. Okay. It seems a little more grounded, a little less nebulous. <laughs> it, it, like it could be a, an actual figure, especially since he's apparently already in the world. But yeah. it could also be a, an idea, thought pattern, a, a way of right. And we have been focusing in Second Thessalonians on it having to be an individual. I'm I'm not sure that's the case either. That it has to be a. God, or it has to be a individual. It could be kind of like what Dave was saying. Could be a thought pattern. Could be those types of things. Um, I think there's I think there's options there. Go ahead, Dan. Well, there's uh, someone made an interesting statement that so if there is going to be an antichrist figure to come, so that Satan has always had to have a man or a person ready at to ready to to event because he doesn't know when this is going to happen. So all through history. He's been, 
this is just an assumption that he goes, okay, I got to have this guy ready. So he's already preparing somebody to fill that spot, yeah. just in case it's the right time. You know what I heard on that? What? Judas. It's a pretty. Um, the common thought would be, um, and I don't remember which which gospel this describes it in, but it says uh, basically he went to his own place, as if there was a special place for him, and that he otherwise would be the one that would return and be that and be that figure. So you're saying that I'm not saying agree with that. I'm just saying that. No, that's, it's interesting. So Judas is uh, well, the Antichrist figure is a Judas figure, or, or him specifically. Yeah. Um, that he is he basically because of how he's interacted with Christ and his falling away, he has ultimately ended up in the uh, under the puppetry or the ability for Satan to manipulate. Well, I was thinking for the person is this is a spy and deceiver person because during Rome, uh, I remember where I read it. They always had they're always trying to get people into the churches to break them up or to turn them into the, the government. And the original way to get in the secret meeting, you had to have them scripture memorized as the password to get in. But the trouble was the Roman people that were memorizing scripture to get in all of a sudden were getting converted. And it happens. Yeah. Well, then, <laughs> then you the symbols, so the fish symbol and the cross symbol, mm-hmm. it's kind of, kind of do the lap of dirt and go, okay, you can come in. It's easier for them to fake a symbol than memorize scripture. Yeah. We did ruin the fish, though. Fish was such a cool symbol. We kind of we kind of ruined it. It was a cool. That's a cool symbol. I don't think it would be Judas because he doesn't have power of resurrection. He goes into a whole new, you know, a lot to talk about there. You would. One of the things you would have to assume is that if that were the case, God would have to permit it in one way or the other. God would would have allowed him to be resurrected for that purpose. That's I think where that thought process goes. It doesn't. Um, I don't think you could take it out of God's hands that he could do that. I just don't see anything in scripture that would help me ground it that way. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, so let's think of some of the. Did anybody have anything else that they thought was interesting, compelling that they've talked about? Go ahead. Well, Satan entered, entered, entered into Judas Iscariot. The Bible says so. Mm-hmm. Couldn't he enter into anybody like you know Hitler or in any Chinese age? It would seem to imply that. Um, I wonder. It, you kind of have an interesting interaction with Jesus and Peter, right? When Peter um, tries to tell Jesus what type of king he's going to be, and Jesus says, "Get behind me." Yeah. Satan, yeah. Um, and so it's. Uh, I don't know that it's im. I don't know that it's impossible to say that. No, well, I don't. Before they're filled with the Holy Spirit, too. Uh, that's correct. That's correct. Here's here's where my hesitation is. Let's look back at our. Let's look back at our primary questions. Okay, I said in verse four. Um, let's see. Letter seven. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. So we have to deal with that temple of God. I'm, I'm asking these questions as to where I orient myself for this particular warning. Based upon the fact that he seems to think that they know who this restrainer is, something he's talked about him before that would seem to make sense to them, and that I, I don't have much of a reason to pull that temple of God thought out from being the actual temple of God for me, this orients around their time. So that would pull me away from saying that I think it's sometime in the future, like past eighty seventy. that it's got to be something that we otherwise have to take in as being as part of our time or some future time significantly beyond that. That would be one of the things that would, for me, would orient me around their time, talking about the temple of God. 
So that is, if, if you, to render it in the future, that generally has to be the way that you think about that, is the temple of God as being the church itself or an individual believer. However, I struggle with that because um, in, in verse 9, it says, The coming of the lost one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That seems to be oriented to me as not the church. He's talking about the people who are perishing that, that he has this impact on that for me, I feel like he's not talking about the church. Mm-hmm. That he, the deception is happening to people that do not believe in Jesus so they're not being pulled away. Who is the book written? 50. Okay, so the temple has fallen. Correct. Yes. Correct. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that is what's, that's what's difficult but to make it not the temple, the building itself. I have to look at that as being the people, God's people and verse 9 makes, I think, it harder for me to, to believe that based upon how it's written. Okay? And again, we're saying all this under the guise that I said I think there's 20 viable theories out here. So don't take these things as I'm saying, I know this for certain, but this is where I'm at. This is where I'm kind of orienting, orienting around this section of Scripture. I have trouble leaving that particular time period. I also have trouble leaving their time period when, again, rooting back in Matthew 24, that... If these are signs of Christ's second coming, then I don't know, then we've completely missed Matthew 24. Because what Matthew 24 seems to tell me is that there will be clear signs as to the destruction of the temple and a finite time frame. And then after that, there will be no signs and Christ will return as a thief in the night whenever he so pleases. If this is not the destruction of the temple to see these things, but these are things that have to happen in the distant future in which Christ returns, then I feel like I've just gotten signs. And so that means I, I, we're not reading Matthew 24 right. We're not reading Matthew, Mark 13 right. Okay, I would have to rethink how we understand those passages for those to be true. And I'm struggling with that, that we, that we have those wrong to the extent that this has to be something in the distant future as opposed to when I say temple of God, I say it's actually the temple of God. When he says here are the signs, that these are signs that otherwise point to a destruction of the temple, which every other sign they've talked about has also been pointing to. Okay, so far... For me personally, I'm still oriented around this being in their time frame. Okay? How, go ahead. I'm sorry. And about him taking the seat in the temple then, is this exactly when Caligula, I mean time frame wise, would have been alive to where because he said he, or one of the others, I mean, and then does that, I mean, it makes more sense that they would have decided they were going to come in and... Let me. I think Caligula probably would have been right about the time this book was written. Was it? I think Nero followed. After that. Which really started slaughtering people. Yeah. Yeah. Four emperors followed Nero. Yep. Yep. I think it wasn't. Vespasian didn't actually march into. Jerusalem, yeah, I think it wasn't his son, Titus, that was the general at the time, is the one that was physically in. Jerusalem. Correct. No, you're right. Yes. So that yep. sounds to me like that kind of makes more. It has. It, it's, yes. There's there's a lot that's oriented around the Roman emperors that make sense kind of in this area. Mm-hmm. Kind of in this area. Yeah. Um, other things that would otherwise root me in here, refuse to love the truth and be saved. Um, whose, whose truth saves you? Jesus. Christ. Yes. Right. This is right. This is this seems to be a Christ issue. All right. Who, who's rejecting Christ? In addition to spirit of antichrist, I think we're being too specific. <laughs> oh, okay. 
They're rejecting Christ. Like that, that, is, that is our big pull. It's the big pull in Matthew 23 and 24, right? You're reje- Jews are rejecting Christ. It's, it's the big tension everywhere is your house is desolate. You're not recognizing you, you beat his prophets when they sent him to you, right? The big tension here is he came to the Jews to save them. He sent people out to minister them and they're rejecting him. Okay, this smacks of me, and this is why last week when I said I was toying, I hadn't kind of vetted it out, but I was toying with this concept of, of the temple, is this smacks of me, of people rejecting the truth, who should know better? That smells like Jewish people to me. That's, That's why they went to the Gentiles. Correct, correct. And so I think it, it, it wouldn't be, it would be difficult to make the case that this applies to everyone broadly, because the truth is new to them, right? But the Jews should have known better. They should have known better. And so I think I think kind of the condemnation that comes here is rooted around simply being the Jews rejecting the truth that is in front of them. David, I couldn't find the on rejecting. Where are we looking? Yeah, verse 10, not rejecting, refused. Do they refuse to love the truth and so be saved? No, it's all right. It's the same thing. Yeah. I think it's the same thing. Using, rejecting. You could. It's been presented to you and you're saying no. You're saying no. You're saying no, yeah. right? Um, they, they, your, they, they did not receive his book. They did not receive Okay. I take it back. They're going to kill Dave, too. <laughs> he seems to know what he's talking about. Well, and, and, you know, we talked before about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everything they did. I mean, they, they, they had them under their thumb. Either believe what we tell you or, you know, you're all wrong. So, it, I mean, and, and they had the Old Testament and everything, all the prophecies that told him he was coming. But still, they probably didn't want to stray away from what the Pharisees and everybody had taught them because they, that's what they've been taught forever. And they, you know, and they didn't believe in Jesus anyway. So I think that's the that's where the real struggle with some of this is is, um, and maybe where some of our fierceness of language on false teachers is because that's that's what has a lot of the Jews kind of in a rough spot, right? Is, is their leadership, their teaching, um, has has pointed them away from Christ, um, and the the amount of exposure they have besides the memorized scripture, right? What they're hearing is the guys teaching in the temple, the guys teaching in uh, the synagogues and stuff. Um, and they're not, they're generally repeating scripture or what other wise rabbis have said and then kind of communicating those types of things. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I think there is, that's what increases maybe this concept of, of people not being able or being deceived, um, is because you have people that are continuing to fight what is the truth of Christ with saying that he's not, um, which seems to fit kind of our vague antichrist definition, right? People who are, who are against or who are basically saying that he is not the son of God. Uh, hello? I think, I think we have a little bit of a, you know, uh, Jesus' primary antagonists. Well, your 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 uh, common Jew back then wasn't going to speak out against the Pharisees or anybody either. You know, right. tell them they were wrong, then their teachings were wrong. Uh, because they chuck you from the yeah. temple or from the synagogue, yeah, and that's and that's shameful. Yeah. Yes. By food or nothing. Right, right. If that's the center of your life. I beat down dolls or whatever another store. They was. That was it. Right, right. And, and, if, and if you think about some of the impacts of being outside of your community, for whatever reason, um, th- think of even in the Old Testament where they talk about someone has to be put outside of the community because they're unclean. Like, being outside of the community is a big deal. That, we, don't, we don't have that. We're like, okay, I stay in my own place. I'm outside of the community. Okay, this seems all right to me, right? But in, in an Eastern culture, and they're still, being outside of those communities is something that means a lot to them. 
Right, right. And actually, it's kind of where you're not with us, you're against this type of, yeah. type of thought process, right? It comes from. Um, Couldn't that be um, their present tense of this about 50 AD, but also the way Jesus writes or tells us that as society goes along, similar events are going to take place? I'm not, it's not impossible. I don't know that there's much in here, especially tagged with Matthew 24 and stuff, that I have to say it is likely. So, um, yeah. The Old Testament is a model of Jesus to come. Jesus given here a model of what might happen. Because, like you say, here in America, we're just different than the rest of the world. But if you're in a Muslim community, all of a sudden, you're not a Christ follower. You're still a Jewish community. You're a Russian. Mm-hmm. No, you're out. No, true. I mean, that seems to be a matter of just how our societies are kind of structured. So I think where where we, if you accept that as a possibility, then you start. You've invited the chance that like this also means could could also mean something in the future. And so the kind of the dangers that come along with people saying these, if there will be no signs, it can't also be that there will be signs, right? And so. I think it would be foolish of me to make it sound like I know exactly all that stuff that that will be that way, and that there haven't been. Because what you've what you've latched onto is true: is that things that we know about the Old Testament, or things that it's talked about, or pointed to Christ, we can see fulfilled in Christ. And so, is it completely out of the realm of possibility that we can understand our world differently or better as we go forward based upon how things happen in the New Testament? I think we would be foolish to reject it. But I also think there's there's probably some distinction in here which say I, there's some things I can't hold in in, in tandem. I can't say there will be no signs and that there will be signs. Like some of those things can't be held together. And a lot of times, uh, if we talked about this a little bit on our, um, I, I talked to you about uh, understanding the nation of Israel. Um, that's where I find the biggest kind of duplicitiveness on things that I can hold together. Did we talk about the, the reinstitution of the temple? So there's a, there's a thought process in, in um, kind of this rapture dispensationalism thought that says um, we, we should support Israel because the temper, temple will be rebuilt. And at the rebuilding of the temple, and this is kind of the sign, sign of when the end days happen, and, and just kind of give you a broad understanding of this theology, I told you that Cyrus Schofield, our guy from the Schofield Reference Bible, he said that Christ never came for the church, right? He came for the Jews, the Jews rejected him, and the church was the second, second item, okay? Second, second try. And so the whole concept of this rapture theology says the church will be taken out, and it will be the Jews that remain, Israel remains, and they will have those seven years to basically get a second chance to be able to come back to God. And, and through one way or the other, God will redeem them and they will still be able to be in heaven and with him forever. Okay, That's, why that, that's what that time of tribulation for, is basically shake up the Jewish people and because of God's covenant with them, they will get to stay. They will ultimately get to be with God forever. Now here's the problem. A reinstitution of the temple means that what Christ did on the cross was not sufficient. That's what it means. But the Jews are getting ready to rebuild the temple. They're getting the priests ready. They're getting all the ceremonial stuff. They could. And I, I find it completely irrelevant to if I'm saved by Christ alone. Mm-hmm. And I don't, see any, I don't see anything in the New Testament what came out of Christ's mouth, what came out of anybody that spent time with Jesus that would imply that something else will do the work. Okay, So I, I, I would have to handily reject the concept that says the temple must be rebuilt. Because it implies that sacrifices will start again and that sins will be atoned for in a temple in which Christ was not sufficient to cover. That is simply not believable to me. It's not believable to me. Which our fascination of the nation of Israel then has to be put in a perspective of I can't hold these two things in tandem. I can't say I only go to heaven through Christ. His death alone on the cross has paid for my sins if the temple has to be rebuilt for this thing to happen. We can't hold those two things together. What about the scales falling from the Jews' eyes? 
So I actually think that there is, that we see evidence of that in, in that century. Right? There's Pharisees that are following Christ. Mm-hmm. And and so I think I think that's happening as as part of that that whole whole time frame. You saw the veil rent in twain. I think you might consider right, Christ. right. And we see and we see like much of the early church has has Jews who are following like his disciples are Jews, <laughs> right? And so I think um, the understanding from that came from there's going to be a whole time when this mass amount of of Jews is just going to suddenly go oh yeah, oh yeah I get it I get it Jesus. But like what happened to the Jews in between like. I, I don't. I don't understand this concept that says you know there's 1,900 years of Jews that got it wrong, and then Christ is really concerned about the last 40 years whenever He comes back, so we'll shake them up for seven, and hopefully they return. Like there's these things we have to be careful, which seem viable, right? Christ made a covenant with Israel. He cares about Israel, and so He's going to shake them back, and so they're going to come to Him. But we have to recognize what we're holding in tandem. We cannot believe Christ died on the cross, and that's how I get to heaven, and say the temple has to be rebuilt. It can't be that. Exactly. And Paul redefines Israel for us to say that it's the church. Well, why would they think they need to rebuild the temple when he wanted to tear the temples down? What is their thinking in that they think they need to rebuild the temple? So the, the, I think the thought process is is that Christ basically came for the church. God's ultimate promises are with Israel. Um, that is how God deals with Israel, was interacted interacting with them through the temple. And so they will come back to him at the time the temple is rebuilt and start doing sacrifices again. They basically miss, miss Jesus. And you yeah. can't miss Jesus yeah. and spend eternity with Jesus. That's not how it works. So, just be careful. If there's, if there's one thing as we continue to kind of look at our end time stuff, is, is you need to figure out what it is that we're thinking and compare it against what we already know and see, can I believe both of these things? Can, can they both be true? And if they can't both be true, I've got to figure out what to reject. And every time, I reject the thing that is not Jesus. Okay? All right. Let's see. Um, he says he seems to think that they know what is restraining the man of lawlessness. I think that's interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting that he's vague here. He's obviously told them what's restraining the man of lawlessness. I mean, he could have been a little more helpful here. He could. I mean, a couple words, some initials, something, something. All right. Any other any other big thoughts before I tell you what I think? <laughs> okay. Um. I am I am I am not 100% on this one, right? Like and I and I say that because what I want to tell you is I'm not sure that in the grand scheme of things this is something I need to be spending and worrying about. Okay? But but the reason that's important to think about is because I think this orients in that in their century and I think whatever it was pointing to is done. In which case I need to be careful that things that are going on in my time don't get rerouted through here as something I have to be concerned with. That's why I care. Not because it's not scripture or because I don't care about what scripture says. Okay? It's because we need to be if we can ground it where it belongs or where I think that it belongs, it keeps me from getting into discussions about this being an antichrist or a beast or something else that I'm not sure is has any relevance to my life today. Because I want to get talking about the other things that they continued to talk about after AD fifty. That meant something to them. And that meant something to God's people. Does that make sense? Okay. That's why I care where this is rooted. Um, I don't want to dismiss it. I just want to think, if I can understand it correctly, I can say, okay, this is for them. I get how it's fulfilled. I can, I can move on with some other things. All right. Here's what I think. So I do think this is, this is routed in their time. I think there's enough here that would that make me think that this is in, in their time frame. And I think it's oriented around the temple. 
I think it has to do with the same thing. Every time Jesus is talked about being concerned about false prophets, every time he's concerned about um, this day of the Lord, this continuing establishment of the kingdom. Um, the, and the, the day of the Lord caught me for a while because I thought, you know, how can that be anything but his second coming? But if you see how the Bible uses day of the Lord, there's actually many different uses. It, it could just be a time of judgment, the great, the great and wonderful day of the Lord, right? Like this time of judgment, that makes a lot of sense for me, rooted around temple stuff. Um, Given the time frame, it seems to make sense to me. I don't know why Paul is talking about this and why he seems to be talking about it multiple times if it is not something that has anything to do with them. If it doesn't mean anything to them, I don't, I'm just not sure why he's bothered to capture it here in a specific letter to the church at Thessalonica. Okay? So all these things are kind of, for me, are coming together and I think it's rooted around um, pointing to the temple and the destruction. Okay? Um, I'm going to read you a little bit from Josephus, and this is from the War of the Jews. Um, and his description of kind of kind of what was going on in the temple. And we've, we've, you have not heard some of this, but you've, we've heard kind of talked about how this was happening against this Jewish rebellion. Um, and note that Josephus is not in cahoots with anybody, right? He's not a Jesus man. He has no reason to kind of line up what he thinks with anything that Christ has said. All right, but here's his here's his uh, description. He's quoting a high priest, Ananus, as saying, "Certainly it had been good for me to die." before I had seen the house of God full of so many abominations or these sacred places that ought not to be trodden upon at random filled with the feet of these blood-shedding villains. That's the Jews themselves into the temple. Okay? Um, Josephus continues to describe, These men, therefore, trampled upon all the laws of men and laughed at the laws of God. And for the oracles of the prophets, they ridiculed them as tricks of jugglers. Yet did these prophets foretell many things concerning the virtue and vice which when these zealots violated, they occasioned the fulfilling of those very prophecies belonging to their own country. For there was a certain ancient oracle of these men that the city should then be taken and the sanctuary burnt by right of war when a sedition should invade the Jews and their own hand should pollute the temple of God. Now while these zealots did not disbelieve these predictions, they made themselves the instruments of their accomplishment. This is kind of pointing to some uh, Daniel 9 type prophecy stuff. Uh, a lot of the times that people will put um, into the world, I think we're not reading Daniel 9 right. seems to orient these things, I think, around the destruction of the temple as well. He continues, And who is there that does not know what the writings of the ancient prophets contain in them, and particularly that oracle which is just now going to be fulfilled upon this miserable city? For they foretold that this city should be then taken when somebody shall begin the slaughter of his own countrymen. And are not both the city and the entire temple now full of the dead bodies of our countrymen? It is God, therefore, it is God himself who is bringing on this fire to purge that city and temple by means of the Romans and is going to pluck up this city which is full of your pollutions. They, this would seem to order... Now, this, his, the interpretation that this thought process comes from would disagree on what I, uh, where I oriented the abomination of desolation okay, in certain ways. Okay? But otherwise, they're saying it's the Jews themselves, these zealots, zealot Jews, are, are the abomination of desolation. Okay? That's not outrageous. Um, I don't know that, I, that it fits as well as I feel like Luke has described um, when we said it's the Roman army surrounding the city. Um, but it's, it's where that thought process comes from. But it still points to the fact that God is using Rome, that Rome may be being restrained, okay? and then God is letting them come and, and basically execute his judgment upon the temple. This wouldn't be a surprise for how we see God execute judgment. He's taken judgment upon the Jews multiple times using third parties, right? Babylon, Assyria, ways in which he, he manipulates and uses outside forces to otherwise bring the Jews to repentance um, or to demonstrate some sort of uh, justice upon them. So, question then is, who is the lawless one and who is the restrainer? So, I actually think we have options in this concept, both as Jews, 
I think we have a, a potential lawless one and a, ch- a potential restrainer as Jews. The lawless one, I believe, is this guy. John of Gishala. John of Gishala was a man. He lived up in Galilee. Do you remember what I said before? Um, the, the major rebellion ended up in Jerusalem. There, was, there were big fights up in Galilee, right? He's, he's the guy. He's the guy kind of leading this operation in Galilee as they are um, being, being attacked by Rome. And he's the guy that flees. And the way that he does this is, um, we were talking about Titus is the guy, uh, Vespasian's son, that actually attacks the temple. Um, and so he tricks Titus. He says, don't attack, it's the Sabbath. You should not attack the, you should not attack us. It's just not right to do it that way. And he used that time that he bought. I don't know why, I don't know why Titus falls for this. But he, he doesn't attack him. And then him and all these Jews that are under persecution by Rome up in Galilee, they head south. And they end up in the temple. Okay? And he's kind of the leader of this zealot rebellion. Okay? Uh, here's some descriptions of him. Um, uh, this is still Josephus describing this. Thus did this man, John of Gashala, put a trick upon Titus, not so much out of regard to the seventh day as to his own preservation, for he was afraid lest he should be quite deserted if the city should be taken, and had his hopes of life in that night and his flight therein. That's his description of fooling Titus and moving to Jerusalem. Now this was the work of God, who therefore preserved this John, that he might bring on the destruction of Jerusalem. That kind of sounds like God, you know, helping him out. Making sure that he's preserved so that Jerusalem may be destroyed. Now again, I, I want to be careful with this, right? Because this is Josephus writing this, right? This isn't scripture, okay? But Josephus has no reason to kind of be in cahoots with this either. And he is our prime historian in this area. That's his description as, a, as an interested third party, ex-Jew, Benedict Arnold, now with the Roman, Roman army. Um, his description seems to fit how we otherwise, how Paul seems to describe the man of lawlessness, which is God is restraining but using... Okay, using to otherwise be part of the destruction of Jerusalem. Here it continues. Um, Later, these harangues of John's corrupted a great part of the young men and puffed them up for the war. But as to the more prudent part, and in those in years, there was not a man of them but foresaw what was coming and made lamentation on that account as if the city was already undone and this and in this confusion were the people. He's, he's being part of confusing people as to what God is actually doing in that circumstance. I think he's a vi- our viable candidate for a man of lawlessness. Okay? Who would be the restrainer then? Here's what I think. I think it's it's that same high priest, Ananus. So there is a Jewish leadership that remains in the temple as the zealots are trying to take it. And as long as they are in place, that zealotry doesn't can't overtake the temple, can't seem to spurn people to fighting against Rome. Okay, once that once that institution is gone, uh, and basically what they do is they drag it, they kill him. They kill the high priest. They do away with any sort of infrastructure that was the high priest. And remember, the high priest, though, high priest was still appointed by Rome. Rome, still appointed by Rome. Okay, you can understand why the zealots are not very happy with <laughs> with the high priest there. But but he is. But his presence, the presence of that kind of leadership, is restraining the zealots from being part of this destruction of the temple. Listen to the description. I should not mistake if I said that the death of Ananus was the beginning of the destruction of the city, and that from this very day may be dated the overthrow of her wall and the ruin of her affairs, whereon they saw their high priest and the procurer of their preservation slain in the midst of their city. And I cannot but think that it was because God had doomed this city to destruction as a polluted city and resolved to purge his sanctuary by fire that he cut off these their great defenders and well-wishers while those that a little before had worn the sacred garments and had presided over the public worship and had been esteemed venerable by those that dwelt on the whole habitable earth when they came into our city were cast out naked 
and seen to be the food of dogs and wild beasts. And I cannot but imagine that virtue itself groaned at these men's cases and lamented that she was here so terribly conquered by wickedness. And this at last was the end of Ananus and Jesus. And there was, a, there was another high priest at the time um, named Jesus. Okay? Seems, seems to me to be able to fit at least our concept of a restrainer. If, if John of Gishala is our person who brings this lawlessness in, who's basically leading this rebellion that ultimately leads to the destruction of the temple, and that is restrained as long as the high priest is there. And once he is killed and dragged naked and fed to the dogs, in a, and it's extremely shameful how they've treated him. That, that, is, that is, as far as Josephus is concerned, is basically the time in which you consider the overthrow of Jerusalem. Okay, that seems to fit for me the the information that Paul is uh, is providing and keeps us within the context of the destruction of the temple. Um, Makes sense in where I think it is a God's judgment upon the Jews who are running from the truth. All that stuff seems to fit. This is compelling to me. The Roman emperors is part of that. Okay, I, I don't think we can dismiss this. I don't think you can dismiss this. I don't because what did what did Paul say? Who was under the influence of who as part of the destruction of the temple? Satan. Satan. And actually, whether you meant or not, April, like this felt a lot like that. I don't think it was someone who was a Christ follower and who turned, but like it's very much this person who had the ability to know and riles up a bunch of people against Christ uh, and against the, uh, basically what Jesus has preached and ultimately causes the downfall of those who he's misled. So I think there's elements of this in everything you guys have taken away from here. Okay? Let's, let's talk about believing the lie. Let's talk about believing the lie. And this, this is what kind of firmed this up a little bit for me. Um, about our, our lawless one's um, influence on believing the lie. So I don't think this is a spiritual condemnation. Okay? I think, I think it's actually tied the... Um, I'm trying to think of the words. Therefore, God sends them a the strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned. I don't think that's a spiritual condemnation. I think that actually has to do with the, the physical judgment on the Jewish people. Okay? Um, because it says, however, if it refers to the events in connection with uh, AD 70, this makes perfect sense. Okay? That evil generation would need to buy into the seditious rebellion against Rome in order for it to be utterly devastated. You have to agree that the fight against Rome is basically the fight to end all fights. And who's stirring this up? But our Wallace guy, our John of Gashala. Okay? Amazingly, many thousands of Jews entered Jerusalem at the last moment to celebrate Passover, even while the Romans were surrounding the city. And even after many thousands had been slain on the Temple Mount by these murderous revolutionaries. Why? Why are they still going into the temple? The ritual. Well, he's destroyed the food, but they don't know that. <laughs> they don't know that. Check out, the lie that John of Gishal and his followers promoted was that God would never allow the city and the temple to fall into Roman hands. Mm-hmm. We are safe here. God will never, God will never allow the temple to be taken. He will never allow the temple to be destroyed. What did Jesus say? Your house has left you desolate. But he says, come on in. Don't worry about the armies. Don't worry about those who have died. God will never let the temple be destroyed. And so what? All these people come for Passover. And they come to be part of this, of this celebration. And many of them died. Said so the lie that John of Gishalos and his followers promoted was that God would never allow the city and temple to fall into Roman hands. No matter what brand of evil these wicked Jews practice, God would protect them from enemy hands. John commissioned false prophets to propagate that lie while drawing more and more victims to the temple mount. 
As a result of that monstrous lie, hundreds of thousands met their violent end. Josephus gives the figure at 1.1 million dead and 97,000 prisoners. I think this, it, it's close for me. Okay? I, it's, not, it's not a slam dunk. Okay? For me, this is not a slam dunk. But it's close. It seems like it's oriented around the right thing. It seems that it represents um, uh, my right understanding of where everything else that, that Christ is pointing to that had signs associated with it seemed to be hanging around. And when I think, when, when Paul is talking about these things have to occur, like Christ, there's no way Christ has come. I don't think these are signs that are saying, when you see these signs, it will be the day of the Lord. He said these things have to happen before that. And do, do they have to happen before that? Yeah, they do. Because the temple will fall before Christ returns. Okay, so I actually think that makes sense within the wording that Paul is using here. So if there's if there's nothing else, I am I am drawn towards the fact that I think this very much centers around their point in time. I don't think it has to happen in the future. We get a lot of weird Antichrist beast stuff when we start talking about these things that might happen in the future. Which means there's things that I'm not afraid of. I'm not afraid of a one world government. Okay, I am not concerned. Frankly, I find this really hard to believe that in this day and age that anybody is going to be able to show up and convince somebody, like like almost everybody, that they indeed are God. I just, I think that ship has, has sailed. I think he, I think you can get away with it in that time. <laughs> I think you had a much uh, stronger ability to, to to do that. I just, we, if we pull this way in the future, I think it makes it sound like, I, I like we're well aware of this. This is documented and said. It's not that people can't be deceived. I just, I just, it just. It seems difficult to me. I'm not concerned about chips and things in foreheads and, and things in arms and signs and marks of beasts. I'm just, it's not how Jesus works. And I don't think all that changes just because there's language that otherwise causes us to think differently than maybe we always have. Go ahead. Well, um, Jesus said the apostle told the apostles to watch that they wouldn't be deceived. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, if, and they were with him. Mm-hmm. And if they could be possibly even deceived, what if, you know, how much more could we? So, so I think, and I think that's you see them kind of um, writing about that, right? Like Paul is, is admonishing that. I just the way that we talk about this antichrist figure or this beast tends to be like like in mass people that love Jesus are being deceived, and I'm just I'm struggling that that remains the case because we don't see the disciples falling away, right? Like he told them to watch, and they watched, and they like Judas aside. Yeah. Nobody falls away, and so I think that's where my hesitation is: is that this this thought process that that I am susceptible to being deceived by this figure, and and I, I think that gives Satan too much credit. I think it gives the the lies of a deceiver too much credit. It's not that you don't have to be looking out for that, so don't don't hear me wrong there. But what I'm saying is is we know Jesus. We're not on the defensive here. All right, like, like we, we're not going to catch a lie, Satan, deceiver, cooties, and then suddenly be wrong. All right, like Jesus is the stronger portion of this. Light, darkness cannot be where light is. We, Jesus is light. We, Holy Spirit is there. And so, the, the things that keep us, I think, in sometimes fear or concern about what's going on in our world around us, and that keep us from acting, I think, are are in themselves a deceit that make it sound like we're moving from the less strong position. And I think that's the lie. I think the lie that makes it sound like we have to be careful about um, what we might what we might see that we might just suddenly stop believing in Christ. I just I'm not seeing that as really the deal. Um, I think a holy, the Holy Spirit I think handles things like that. Um, it's not that there's not risk there. Don't, don't hear me wrong, but what I'm saying is is that like light is stronger than darkness. We are moving from a position of strength 
under a redeemer, not a position of hiding in the corner lest we be exposed to something that causes us to worship something else. Okay? That, that's what I mean. If you look at the players in all of this, they're feeding right into what Satan loves. He loves pride. He loves, he loves we're going to be the best guy. We're going to be the top zealot. Our, our faction of the zealots is going to overrule all the others. Right. We're going to make a stand. We're going to make a choice. And, and Satan's all of that. He's going to use that. No, agreed. Agreed. This has this sniffs of Satan all over the place. And actually, that, that is one of the ways in which I think um, we, that we don't have a record of John of Gishala claiming himself as God. But look at the look at the steps that he's taken. Right. If you're gonna if you're gonna to murder and chuck the high priests, like the uh, regardless of whether Rome is in cahoots with this, they are still people appointed in God's office. Right. And so to for you to be able to take that position and feel like you get to to condemn the high priest, like. That, that that was a, well, that's kind of a missing link in there for me. I think I can get there a little bit with that thought process. I'm not sure I'm there all the way, but I think I can get there with his actions. Otherwise, reflect that would reflect that concept, Procla- like proclaiming God's power to cast judgment on things that aren't, aren't His to cast judgment on. Okay. Well, I think more of just taking a seat in the temple and, and proclaiming Himself God was not necessarily a deed. Throwing out all of the other gods. Uh, yeah. Throwing out the laws of man, throwing out the laws of God, throwing out the high priest, and it's you know it set up, got rid of all of the other the other zealot factions, and so therefore there's just nobody left. So he's so he's just sitting at the top of it. Yeah, I think that's viable. Yep. How are we feeling on Second Thessalonians? A lot of it is, isn't it? We, we are reading in the New Testament. We really want so much to be about us. This could be about me. It could be about my day so I can look out the window and say, Jesus might be coming right now and I'll see him. And here's the deal. like You, you might see that. It's all right. But you're not going to see a bunch of weird stuff happening before. I think he'll just be there. He will just be there. Um, and if, if we can root this stuff where it belongs, I think we don't get so distracted on some of the other things that we're missing while we're talking about. What, hey, I, the, the blood moon's still coming, though. So I mean, I mean, if I'm wrong, the blood moon will have it. It's at the end. Of, what's it? September 28th. Cross them, cross them, boys. Blood moon. I think it was early. That was the third one. There's one more. There's there's one more. That's what I'm talking about. I, and here's here's the thing. It's like I, 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 if we got Jesus right, I'm willing to be wrong here. What do I care whether it's John and Gashala? I don't. I don't care. I think it makes sense to me. I think it roots scripture where I think it should be, right? Do I care? Am I invested whether it's John or Gashala? No, not really. Not really. But I think we need to make it, we need to make an attempt though. Like as much as I want to be able to say, I should just pass this by and not have to work with it. It is such a pit for people, right? It's, it's such a breeding ground of deception if we don't spend time with it. And so, even if it's just, if we can say nothing else, but we can be comfortable rooting this around their time frame, that's enough for me to be able to move on from that conversation and not get around swimming in it. Okay, so let, so let me ask you this. Okay. What is the purpose of this, then, other than it being God breathed? Why is this important for us to know? Um, I, I think it is, well, let me, I'll answer it two ways. One, I think it's important for the Church of Thessalonica to know. So let's let's start there, right? There was a primary audience of who Paul was communicating with, of which if he doesn't nip some of this stuff in the bud where it's at, maybe we're having different conversations today. 
So I think at its, on its face value, we can say um, this is something that at least God wanted to make sure the church of Thessalonica was aware of. Um, I think from there, it, so if I look back and I say this is rooted in them, I can actually be affirmed of watching God work. Right, I have the perspective where I can look and see uh, this all makes sense to me. Dest- destruction of the temple, he will not be laughed at. He will not be mocked. Um, his judgment will come. Jesus said it would. He, he declared it desolate, and he very well did it. And we have that perspective from multiple places, not just biblically, but also externally. And so is there, is there a historical element that kind of affirms these things that Jesus has said? Yeah, I think it is. Do, is, this a, is this a desk calendar item where I can look it up on you know, July 18th and like, ah, excellent. See, no, (laughs) no, I don't think I can necessarily take this and say, I will live my life differently because of this, but it does inform how I understand God, how this information, how I um, understand the things that he promises to come to pass and where I can be confident in the things that he said will come. So I think it would do that for me if I can, if it's rooted there, if it is something in the future, I probably have to rethink that. And it doesn't mean that I can't understand something about God because of it, but like what I think it tells me might be different (laughs) than what I'm thinking it is. But for that, it would do that to me. And I think, you know, that, that's one of the struggles when we, when we really start to dig into Scripture and we pull those things back. Um, there are some things that aren't for us that I think that we've taken for us. There, in fact, one of the, the biggest, um, most largely abused items are things that God has said to Solomon. For heaven's sakes, things that God says to Solomon do not necessarily belong to you. Right? And so, like, we take our, sometimes our perspective of, well, Solomon's rich. Well, he's a guy. He's a guy. And like, but what is it? What is it? The um, it, we didn't finish reading this, but if you go after Matthew twenty-four, and the, the, one of the primary distinctions that Jesus makes when he's separating sheep and goats has to do with how you treat poor. You know what I'm saying? So like, sometimes we, we get a little bit blindsided because we want to take things that God is saying to a specific person. Actually, my wife's not here. This would totally rile her up. But like the um, the knit you knit you in your mother's womb. Like for me, that's for Jeremiah. That's that's not for me. That's not necessarily mean that God has, when I was born, he says, I have a plan specifically for Ben's life. I don't know that that's true. I know that that's true for Jeremiah. But I don't know that that's true for me. Could it be? Sure. Does it bring you comfort? I'm okay with that. But like, sometimes we say things like that and say, he definitely has a plan for my life. And then you spend all your life searching for this distinct plan. When he's talking to his people in a very generic way and says, here's how you can be. Whatever it is that you're doing, be this way as you do them. And so we end up not doing Christ's work because we're chasing some sort of shadow image of which we are supposed to stand in. You, you, you know what he's knit me in my mother's womb to be? Jesus. Jesus. He's knit me to be like Jesus. I'm not sure that he has prescribed into my life a specific way in which I have to be. That's debatable. Okay, it's debatable. And my wife, my wife hates that, like I've taken something away from her. <laughs> okay? And I get that. And, and here's what I, if that is something that you believe, I'm not going to fight you about it. Because I think there's, there's something viable about it. But, but sometimes we get lost chasing an identity that we have been given in Christ. As opposed to some sort of separate thing that we feel like I'm not fulfilling my life's purpose. I feel like my life's purpose is to follow Jesus. <laughs> and it may not be all that more um, difficult than that. But he tells us what to do. He tells us to go out and tell the good news and and lead people to Christ. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, to me, that's fine. You know. No, it's 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 a fine image, right? It's a fine thing to be knit for. Demand or not. It's not just a suggestion, you do it. Agreed, agreed. And I think sometimes, and this is not true for everybody, right? Like you can, 
I think there are certain things that God will bless and point you to and that He does have you doing specifically. Don't hear me saying that He's not having you do something. But I think sometimes we lose... We stop following Jesus while we're looking for ourselves so that we can find ourselves and then show it to Jesus and say, got it, and now me and this, my image of mine will follow you. And I think that's risky because there are people who never feel comfortable in their own skin. They don't feel comfortable of, of someone who is created in God's image and likeness. And they never actually get to following Christ in this beautiful thing that God has created because they're always looking for something else that they think God wants. And I think we have to be careful with that. Um, and, and sometimes that, that particular verse is the root of that. We say, well, I just don't, I don't feel it. I don't feel like I'm the person that God has made me to be. And I, I'm like, I feel like if you follow Jesus, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And so um, we just, as we dig into some of these things, though, like we have to remember that they were said to a specific people at a specific time. And so they had to hear it. And it doesn't mean it's not for us, but that does have to inform how we hear it. We're hearing it as it goes through another party. What was their situation? How are they hearing it? Now, how can I apply it to me? And that, that, that segues nicely into our discussion about what to look out for in Revelation. Is Revelation is written for a specific group of people. There are seven churches in Asia Minor their pastor John is writing to. Okay? And so I have to hear it in their environment and the types of things that they are concerned about. What we tend to do is we take the first three chapters of Revelation and say, this, these are things that the churches are struggling with. They can apply to my life. I love it. As a matter of fact, I've seen churches do sermon series and they'll do the first three books, the first three chapters of Revelation, and then they stop because the rest has to be for some far off time in a far off place of when Christ returns and which they can, then we should be able to understand these things. But the truth is, is that John, as a pastor, is a bit of a kind of a jerk. If he's going to say, by the way, here's the things that I condemn you for. Here's the things that Christ is saying you need to know. And by the way, I know that you're going through social, social persecution. You're being drawn into this lifestyle that isn't of Christ. And I know there is some physical persecution in your life. And this will very much help somebody who is in that very situation, except only if it's 2,000 years from now. This has nothing to do with you at all, chapters 4 through the end. I don't understand Pastor John, loving Pastor John, who travels and, 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 and takes beatings for his people, who says, here's some three things, here's three chapters, and then here's everything else for somebody else that's not you. I just don't see him doing that, which means, how do they hear it? How are they hearing Revelation? What does this mean to them? It can't mean something that happens 2,500 years from now, because that doesn't seem very helpful for them. It couldn't. It doesn't mean that we don't have a grand narrative in Revelation. What, what you have is, I think you have you have John communicating. God, God's got this under control. If Revelation is about anything, it's about hope and God's sovereignty. He's got it under control. You do not need to fear, regardless of what it is that you're looking at. But some of the distinctives that we find within the story of Revelation, I think we need to be careful because we're going to want to do the same things we did in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is we're going to say, this can't mean something to them. This has to be something for me and it must be in the future and I better keep an eye out for it. And we got to be careful. As you look, as you, if you're going to start to approach Revelation, here's some things to think about. One, we started looking at symbols. Um, trumpets so in, in Revelation you're look, there's symbols everywhere I mean they're all over the place okay use your Old Testament as a guide alright symbols will, will tend to be used consistently we talked about locusts right invading armies potentially okay um Symbols will tend to be used consistently. When we try to interpret symbols in our view as opposed to seeing how is the Bible used these symbols throughout, that's when we start to get askew. All right? So look for, as, as you see symbols, where else did I find this in the Bible? And your, your cross-references will do that. Okay? You'll, uh, or do, just do a basic Bible search for that. Look for the Greek word and then find it. 
See where else it's used in the Old Testament. See the context in which it sits. Well, the Greek, yeah. It would be Septuagint. Okay, it doesn't matter. Um, anyway, just look for it. See how the Bible uses those, those symbols. Second, keep an eye out for recapitulation. Okay? Uh, everybody know that word? Think that word. Recap. I'm going to say the same thing again so that you may understand it either in a slightly different way or to reiterate it so that you understand what I'm saying. Okay? So when we say recapitulation, we mean recap. Okay? Um, if you look for stories that repeat themselves, you see seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven seals. Okay? Repetition. Not necessarily new things. Okay? Not, new, not necessarily new things. Different perspectives. But I'm, I'm going to submit to you that I think it's, it's different perspectives on the same thing. Okay? On the same type of information. The same great story is being recapped for you. And this is not unfamiliar in the Bible. You see this um, same type of description happens in Ezekiel. You see the same thing. Frankly, I would say that um, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are recaps. Like you get the same story told just from a different perspective. You have a macro perspective and a micro perspective. A story that steps back and says, understand it this way. Okay? Okay? That's not a new thing to happen in the Bible. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, in Daniel, if you read the first seven chapters of Daniel, you see recapitulations of those stories. Um, and I, I don't remember which, I think it's like one and four and two and five. I don't remember what they were, but like they line up one and two. Just one and two? Uh, two, seven, and eight. Okay. Okay. Herrick says two, seven, and eight. They're definitely going to kill Herrick. Also Joseph. And, ah, Joseph. Yeah. He's got the seven fat cows and seven lean cows and seven greens. Right. You see those dreams, multiple dreams of Joseph, and they're saying the same thing, right? They're reiterating a concept, sometimes from a different angle, sometimes just a repetition to, to hammer home the point, okay? Revelation is doing that, okay? Revelation is doing that. So look, look for repetitions as you go through there. Are you referring to double, double fulfillment? Uh, no, no. I actually think he's telling the same story twice. So I think it's I think when he talks about the, the trumpets, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven bowls, it's describing the same general event. It just slightly different perspectives or from a different person's point of view or happening to a different group of people. But I think it's the same event as opposed to something that is fulfilled both here and here in two separate times. I think it's the same event. Like Isaiah and Jesus. Uh, yes. Yeah, so that would be double fulfillment. Yeah. Um, and then it, so this one, I think re recapitulation would be distinct from that where it is multiple tellings of the same event. Like Joseph's, Joseph's dream is a good, a good example. He has multiple dreams that describes the same basic understanding of that famine that comes up. It's both describing the famine. It's just two different perspectives on it. Um, and so that's, yeah. that's kind of a recapitulation. Okay. Yep. Okay. Um, let it sit within when it was written. This uh, revelation, as far as um, from my perspective, would have been written sometime around 90, okay, after the destruction of the temple, um, and written to those seven churches in Asia Minor, so where the, the gospels kind of spread outside of Jerusalem and is into these seven churches. And that's who, he's, that's who he continues to talk to. Okay? Those would be my hints on um, reading Revelation. I would recommend that you not, um, that you not go Google searching Revelation. Okay. Don't 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 go searching the internet for information about Revelation. Okay. Um, we opened up Second Thessalonians. You see what that did. <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff out there. Okay. Within um, within the context of us talking about it on a weekly basis, I think that's good. Um, short of when I don't have an exact date of when this is going to start, here's what I would recommend if you're going to read Revelation: just get through it. Just read through it. Like you don't have, don't you don't have to parse it. You don't have to study it necessarily. Just read through it. And if you're confused, that's okay. 
is part of the genre. It's all right. We'll talk through the genre and stuff when we get to it. Um, but, but just try to read through it. Okay? And look, if you're going to look for anything, look for major themes. Can God's people be comforted here? Should God's people be scared about this? Probably when. It's generally the perspective. Yeah, yeah. Lord has given it away. <laughs> Revelation is over. <laughs> okay? So, thinking about, like, what would they see? What is God's position in this manner? Like, what is, what is happening? And how would God's people react? And, like, some of those are scary things. Um, like, the point in time when God is saying, no, more of you, more of you will die when it's enough. God says, when it's enough. That's power. Sovereignty. Okay? Um, you're going to get some weird descriptions, like um, this uh, description of this being sitting on the throne. It's going to be Jasper and Carnelian and all these different, um, different, uh, what's the right word? Stones. Yeah, precious stones and stuff. Okay? Don't try to figure out what the stones are. If you saw a big thing full of precious, precious stones kind of gleaming, what would your reaction be? Ooh. Yeah, ooh, that's beautiful. Good, you got it. Yeah, yeah. There's something, there's something precious and beautiful sitting upon the throne. Okay, if you see a, um, actually in that same scene, and the th- throne room is a cool scene. You see that the 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 sea is like glass underneath the throne. So if you um, from other parts of the Bible, uh, in fact, back to Daniel, um, where the beasts, there's these four awful beasts, and they and they come from the sea. Okay, trouble and chaos come from the sea. It's where uh, boats are shipwrecked. It's where um, where Jesus is walking out on the water and they're afraid. They're afraid because all this trouble is coming from the sea. And this thing that is chaos and, and, and trouble in the world sits calm and undisturbed at the foot of the throne. You, you see what John's doing? Okay, he's, he's painting a picture. It doesn't have to be a literal throne with some sort of weird creature with emeralds on his face sitting on top of a sea. What I see is a sovereign God that is beautiful who sits atop a throne in which that which is chaotic is calm and unmoving at his foot. As people, right? Uh, no, I, I, think it's, I think it's just chaos in general. These things that... The sea, the sea is people, right? I, well, so I actually think, I think it's not. I think it's just, just this understanding of where chaos comes from, of disorder. And I think you see it in order at, at God's feet. That's actually what I think that's, that's saying. Well, it's also shown in the, uh, Jesus walking the water. When he shows up, it calms down. Yeah, because yes. Spiritual battle. Same concept, right? Is those, the things which are in God's control. And at the foot of a sovereign God, these, this is how things are. And so, as you approach Revelation, and you're not going to be able to parse all those. Frankly, there's a good list of them that I, I'm still having trouble with. Okay? Um, I think if you claim to have understood the book of Revelation completely, you're telling a filthy lie. Mm-hmm. All right? However... Um, that's the type of thing you're looking for. Don't, when, when you see, he's painting a picture. He's taking various colors. Because think of who we're trying to describe. We're trying to describe a sovereign God at this, this potential end of, end of life event and what life is like after these things and what these great battle versus good and evil is. And I'm not sure our words can do it. So what does he use? He uses symbols, things that he can grab onto that we can understand, things that represent power and glory and sovereignty and those types of things. He's painting a picture. So let him paint. Okay, if you go into the art center and you try to look at every, every little thing, it makes it very interesting once you know what they are. But if you try to interpret it without that, that right framework, you, you don't have any idea what's going on in the picture. So let him paint. Just kind of, just read through it and kind of take in these images and don't, don't feel like you have to point them down. And then we'll search them out. I promise the Bible's got answers in those things. They, it uses almost all those things. There's more Old Testament references in Revelation than there are verses. Okay, there's, there, that's what he's, he's pulling in this grand theme of his story all kind of coming to a head in Revelation. Okay, but go, go ahead and read it broadly. It's okay, and you won't understand it, and that's all right. You don't try to put events where events go. Just 
be broad with it. It's okay. And we'll get to it and we'll study through it and it'll, it'll make it even that much deeper. It'll be very, very cool. It's a very cool book to study. Especially if we can orient it where it belongs. It's, it makes you think how encouraging this would be to those people who are, who are facing some of the things that those churches in Asia Minor were facing. Okay? That's my recommendation for Revelation. All right, last thing, and then I'm going to let you go. Um, I had a great time with you guys. Thank you for coming. It was great. I love, like, I love this stuff. Um, it's fun for me to be able to digest it with you. Like, I can think what I think in my own room, and then no one says anything, and I think, Haha, I'm a genius. <laughs> right? And then I, then I come in here, and I know better, and this is good. You guys are here to humble and change me, and I appreciate you participating in that. Um, one of the things that I would, would encourage you to do, um, and it does not necessarily have to be at this level, um, but stay reading. Okay, stay reading, stay finding what God has. Um, but he's, it's, it's such a. We were talking about the Jews who who don't who didn't necessarily have the Old Testament at the ready and they memorize it. And I think that's cool. But look, what do we have at the ready at any given time? Is is God's word and a community to discuss it with? Okay, so stay reading. That's cool. Um, if you're not in something where you have some level of, of of community to talk about Scripture with, to share your life with, I would recommend doing that. We've we've got plenty of cool options. Um, Dave, Dave's got a, got a pretty cool discipleship study um, that, that lets you take, um, I don't reassess what we know so that we can then look at the scripture in a new way. I think it's very cool for that. If you haven't done that, um, I would recommend um, getting involved in something like that and you can talk to him um, and he'd be able to help you kind of plug into that. Um, community groups are a good spot. Um, there's a lot of really good options, guys, but um, I would recommend just, just do that. It's, it's, it's good for you. Um, and this was very good for me and I thank you for sharing the time with me. Any other questions? Okay, are you free to go? Good night. Thanks for coming. Thank you.